and welcome back to yet another great and exciting episode of Digging Up the Past. I am your host, Petros Katupis, and today we are talking with professional genealogist and historical scholar and researcher, Anthony Adolf. And we will be discussing a topic that has fascinated me for many years. To be honest, I only knew about this character for hmm, maybe seven years. And it is because of Anthony's book, which I believe I reviewed for Ancient Origins back in 2016. Anyway, we are talking about Brutus of Troy and the book Brutus of Troy and the Quest for the Ancestry of the British. And I'm willing to bet that many of our listeners have never even heard the name, let alone the legends that surround the character who is credited for not only finding and establishing Britain, but also being its first king. Anthony, welcome to the show. Now, before we get started, and if you do not mind, can you please tell our listeners who is Anthony Adolf? Who am I? I'm a, a well, I, yes, as you said, I'm a professional genealogist. Um, I've been doing that for, I've been doing it for 33 years now, Petros, all my, um, all my working life, um, ever since I was a, a, a history student. Um, and I, I, my daily work is tracing people's family trees. And normally that's going back into the 19th century or the 18th century. And all along, you, you said you hadn't heard of Brutus until I'd written about him. Occasionally, you'd come across a family tree that was vastly, vastly longer than any other family tree you'd come across. And you'd look at this thing and look up and you'd and go back through the generations, back come into the dim, distant mists of time. And, 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 and invariably, at the very top of the family tree, right way the way back in the past, would be this bizarre, odd character called Brutus of Troy. And and for a long time, I just sort of accepted that once in a while, you know, there he'd be, you know, you'd notice him <laughs> up at the top. Hello there. But then after after a while, after, after years and years of being a genealogist, I started to think, well, actually, I'm really quite curious about this character and, and, and what's he doing there? And, and, and how how have they got back so far in time to, to make a connection to him? And indeed, what, what was he doing? What was his story? Where, where did he come from? So that's what got me interested in all this. He is, of course, a uniquely British character. I, I'm not surprised you hadn't heard of him because you're 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 um, Greek, aren't you? So, so I mean, in Greece, you'd have, you, I'm sure the Greeks have never heard of Brutus of Troy. Uh, in America, you might have come across him because, of course, a lot of the Americans do come from Britain. And when Americans trace their family trees back, they do quite often make connections back to royalty for reasons I could explain perhaps in another podcast, but they do. And then if you go back up the royal family trees, you can eventually come to old Brutus. So, so there are quite a few Americans out there who will have come across Brutus in the course of tracing family trees and going back up royal lines. So, so, so there he is. So, so that's what got me interested. And that's where, 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 where I came in. That is completely fascinating. And honestly, going to the book, it is extremely well-researched and well-written. So now I understand you. why you decided to uh, write about Brutus. And you started to get into why Brutus or what Brutus means to the Britons. I don't know if you want to elaborate more on that. Well, now I'd say to most Britons, as to most people listening, 
you're right. Very few people have ever heard of him. If, you, if I went outside now and asked sort of stop people in, in the lane outside, I mean, not that there ever is anyone, but if, I, if there was, and said, you know, what about Brutus of Troy? They'd just give me a funny look. Uh, and um, so, so now, unfortunately, he means very little indeed uh, to, to most people. And that's a shame because he was a, a, a wonderful uh, mythological character. He got replaced, by the way, by Britannia. And everyone has heard of Britannia, not least because of the song rule Britannia. Again, that's another story. But if you went back to the 16th or 17th century and said Brutus of Troy, then actually most people who could read and who were educated would know precisely who I was talking about. And not only would they know who I was talking about, they would know that he was the mythological founder of Britain. And for most people in the 16th and 17th centuries who'd heard of Brutus, they believe he was a real person and that all British history went back to him originally. And the same applies in the Middle Ages. If you could find an educated person, there weren't that many around. But if you could find any of them, they'd know precisely who I was talking about. And in the Middle Ages, once in a while, Brutus even came into uh, elements of British, um, British domestic and foreign policy. Wars were justified on the basis of things Brutus of Troy had done. And you, you occasionally find the Welsh and the Scots, because they come into the myth as well, equally tried to forge alliances between them, against, usually against the English, on the basis of, of things that Brutus had or hadn't done. So, so he was actually a very potent and important part of, of British life up to about the 17th century, and then things he did sort of tail off a bit, actually, under the light, the, the harsh light of modern science, science, which came in in the 18th century, he began to sort of fizzle out, um, which is a shame. But he left this wonderful residue of extraordinary old family trees and lots of little sort of bits of myth left over from when he was an important character. I once likened Brutus to a sort of magnificent great wave that sort of rolled in from the ocean and was at one point a very an incredibly powerful and important part of British life. And then then when the when the wave, you know, the way it does on a beach, the way the wave when the wave receded and, and went back, leaving the sand all, all, all sort of moist and everything, he just left behind a few little bits and pieces, a few bits of flotsam and jetsam lying around. And you come across those occasionally as you go around Britain. And 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 if you know if you know the myth if you understand it all you think oh, okay that's that's a bit left over from Brutus for example if you go to Bath you see a statue of King Bladdard um, and you see on the tops of the buildings stone acorns you see acorns all over the place and that's because Bladdard um, was at one point a, a pig a swine herd a pig herder and the, and the pigs ate acorns um, and, and Bladdard came into existence by as a descendant of Brutus you see. So bladdered, you can see in Bath, and you, the acorns are due to bladdered. And so, so there are lots of little bits and pieces around which Brutus has left behind. So first and foremost, it's funny that you say that today's Britain may not necessarily know the mythological legacy that Brutus has left behind. And I'm not at all surprised because you know, after reading your book, I have gone up to my British friends and said, hey, do you know anything about this character? And they would look at me, you know, very puzzled, like, yeah, we don't know anything about this. And, and, and hearing you explain it makes sense as, as to why. But I want to go back to something that I found extremely interesting in the Brutus mythos. And that is the fact that 
Brutus, the character, traces himself back, or the, 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 the monks, I should say, trace Brutus's lineage all the way back to Aeneas of the Trojan War. And, you know, here's the thing. Why? Why did they trace Brutus to Aeneas? Why create this character uh, who traces themselves back to the Trojan War? Why was this so, so significant, especially during an era <laughs> when Christian, Christianity dominated Western Europe? You know, we're talking about what was still considered the Dark Ages. So the fact is, they took a character and traced him down to Roman myth. Yes, that's right. Well, I mean, first, just to sort of summarize a little of my, my ideas about Brutus, is that he was invented. He was an invented character from the name of Britain. Britain is called Britain. Why is Britain called Britain? Nobody knew. So they invented a character called Brutus. He was initially called Britus to sound like Britain. But then Roman influence was so uh, prevalent that they thought Brutus would sound a bit better. So, so he was invented. And then your question is, why did they link him back to Aeneas in a, Christ, in a Christian era? Well, of course, Chris, Christianity always kept the Trojan myth very close to its heart. Right the way through the history of, of Christianity, Virgil's Aeneid remained one of the most read book for anyone who could read. And, and as you know, of course, Rome itself established a Trojan origin myth for itself with the story that Aeneas left Troy and came and settled in Italy and laid the foundations of Rome. So Rome always had the, or ended up having the Trojan myth at its heart. And then when Christianity got started in Rome, of course, it took on it took on that element of, of, of Trojan mythology and carried it forward. And of course, you might say, well, that's extraordinary because they were all Christians and, and then they sort of adopted this bit of pagan mythology. And it does seem rather odd, but of course, they did need some sort of um, origin for themselves and they needed to sort of look back into the past and, and, and know what was going on. And, and this, the, the, the Trojan War has always been a very, a very pivotal point in classical history and it remains so for, for early Christianity. And, and they Christianized it quite early on by simply taking the, the Trojan dynasty, the ancestors of Aeneas, uh, and tracing them, uh, as you know, the Greeks traced them back to the, 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 the classical gods. And so the Christians simply said, well, actually, the classical gods weren't gods, they were kings. And then they traced those kings back to Noah and Adam and Eve. So they Christianized the whole of classical mythology by this little sort of genealogical sleight of hand. So you had a situation where if you wanted to go back a long way into the past, you could very respectably as a Christian monk, go back to the, the through Aeneas to the kings of Troy, and then through the classical gods who were actually, they said, mortal men, um, and then make your way back to Noah and back to Adam and Eve, and then link yourself back into the Bible. And so when the British monks invented Brutus of Troy, they were always looking back to Rome as their starting point. And so once Brutus became a, 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 a real mythological character, if you like, a real, a real figure in British mythology, they wanted an origin for him. And so it sort of made sense to link him back to, to Aeneas and, and thus to the Trojan dynasty, uh, as, opposed to, as opposed to anyone else. Who, who else would you link him to? And, and so, so rather sort of by default, Brutus ended up Brutus, the Brutus, the founder of Britain, because he had the same name as Britain, ended up 
having Trojan ancestors, because really they're the, they were the only people who you'd sort of want to link him back to. It was a sort of self-fulfilling um, matter that, that Brutus, that the founder of Britain, would end up as Brutus of Troy, from Troy. He never was from Troy, by the way. It was it was his great-grandfather Aeneas who came from Troy. Um, Brutus himself, in the myth, was born in the Italy in which Aeneas had settled. So Brutus was, in fact, Brutus the Italian, and his ancestors were the Trojan ones. It's that's quite complicated, but there you go. That's 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 what I worked out. No, that's <laughs> that's a good point you raise. Well, I guess we sh- we shouldn't call him Brutus of Troy. Oh no, no, well, that's his name. He's always been called Brutus <laughs> of Troy. I, I was just I was just being slightly pedantic there. And I know. I'm, he never I'm, actually went to Troy. There's a, there was a poem. There's a wonderful poem written in the in the 18th century, uh, which I quote extensively in my book. Um, I think it's the one by Jacobs, where actually they do imagine the young Brutus wandering the world and going back to Troy and sort of wandering through the through the, the ruin. Beautiful scene, wandering through the ruins of Troy and sort of thinking, oh, this is where my, my ancestors came from. Because they were all the time people have embellished the story and, and sort of added more details and sort of gone into the idea that he was this exiled Trojan prince. And they, they loved the romance of it. It was another good reason for, for making him a Trojan in the first place. So he was an invented character who they then linked to the very, the substantial Trojan myth that already existed at the heart of, uh, the heart originally of Roman culture and actually at the heart of, of Christian culture as well. It's interesting that you, you know, you say that the, the, the Britons at the time were very well, I don't want to say well-versed, but were very knowledgeable of Aeneas and the Aeneid. Oh, yes. Yes, and, no, and, and, when they, well, you see, they didn't know any of their, the British didn't know, we didn't know our own history. What we know now is what's, what archaeology has discovered. If, if, if it wasn't for archaeology, then once you'd go back to, well, actually, the arrival of the Romans, if you want to go back before then, there is nothing. There are no written records. There are, we don't know the names of the king. We don't know. We know nothing that existed in Britain before Julius Caesar arrived, apart from what we've dug up. And so anyone looking back into the past, in, in the past, and trying to sort of create a history of Britain, had to link Britain to a culture which did have a written history. Which would, which was the which was Roman culture, and so, and you find this all over Europe. Once every once countries became civilized and and, and acquired writing and, and Christianity, and they wanted to create a sort of write a, a history for themselves, going right the way back to the Great Flood and and thus back to Adam and Eve. They had to fill in the gap, and they couldn't. They didn't have archaeology in those days, and so they they, they could only fill it by referring to the cultures that did have written histories, which is Greece and Rome. And so yes. that's why they all linked. They, they, they link into that because there's nothing else to link into. Which it, is it, quite it, unfortunate it, because it tends to be a very biased history, right? I think of the Etruscans, for example. The Etruscans themselves, while they came out of, I don't want to say nothing, while they evolved into the Etruscans in what is today Tuscany mm. or back then Etruria, they adopted writing from you know the Greeks who the colonized Greeks, yeah. you know southern uh, Italy and, and and the islands. They had their own writing, and for the most part, while we haven't fully deciphered the language, uh, we understand enough to be dangerous. But at the same time, all we have is one what the classical Greeks wrote about them, which mm. was usually 
not very positive and what the later Romans tended to write about him. And from what we could identify what the Romans adopted from Etruscan culture, right? The only thing yeah. that is purely in Etruscan that's undisturbed and unbiased is what we find in the tombs. Aside from that, you know, it's the same problem here, even in the Americas. A lot of the earliest, for example, uh, Spanish colonists and, and, and um, settlers you know, wrote extensively about the native cultures here, whether it was in the southern parts of North America, Central America, and, and um, you know, South America. A lot of these cultures did not have writing. So we have, even to this day, we, we have to rely on these ancient, uh, or not ancient, I'm sorry, uh, these, these Spanish authors, and it tends to be very biased. They tend to portray these natives as pagans or, or devil worshippers or something equally as, as, as bad. So yeah, yes, that's, you don't, you that's, don't get their own, you don't get their own version of things. Exactly. And it no, still and continues so, to so. be a large, overwhelming task for modern historians and archaeologists to help rebuild and rewrite that history. Yes, that's right. No, but in fact, this, this is, I think, I agree with what you just said, but in fact, this was like what what, what was going on with, with Brutus and indeed with the Etruscans is something slightly different, which is that they no they didn't they, they didn't have any sort of real knowledge of their own ancestry beyond what they could remember, and, and I've never been a great believer in oral history. I can I can never even remember my own postcode. So how people are supposed to have been able to remember great reams of of, eight, of their own histories I've, I've never understood um but 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 in the in the absence of facts uh when, when you had the great corpus of classical history and classical mythology it was a matter really of picking and choosing and then the etruscans as you know petros uh, chose the lydians didn't they as their as ancestors there um, was yeah there was some uh connection with uh, Western Anatolia and yeah. The yes. And so Lydia, Lydia as well. Lydia is yeah. about 100, 100, 150 miles south of Troy. Um, and and they, the Lydians fought on the side of the Trojans in the Trojan War. And so the Etruscans sort of picked uh, for a terribly complicated reason, which is in my new book, funnily enough. But, but that, never mind that. Uh, um, but they 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 picked the the Lydians. But they, they, they sort of pick and they could pick and choose the nice bit, the good bits of classical mythology. They 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 sort of you know came across a nice classical myth and thought, okay, that sounds nice. We'll have we'll have that as our origin. And so the Etruscans picked the Lydians and, and the British picked the Trojans. And and in both cases, um they 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 sort of picked the best of the bunch. And they had had myth, they had ancestors, they they acquired ancestors they could be proud of, even though the ancestors were people they just sort of decided were going to be their ancestors the day before yesterday. But once they decided, they became terribly proud of it. And the Lydians were proud. I'm sorry, the Etruscans were proud of their Lydian antecedents. The Romans picked the Trojans. They, they loved it. Um, and, 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 and so did the British. And in both the cases of, of Rome and Britain, once they decided they were Trojan, my goodness me, they, they took the ball and ran with it. They were, you know, they, they, became immensely proud of their Trojan origins. <clears throat> my new book, by the way, the proofs of my new book, Petros, arrived on the computer about an hour ago. Ah, that's convenient. Is, I know. Marvel, it's been delayed by COVID and, and delayed by anything that could ever delay a book. But it's it's the biography of Aeneas, the, the great-grandfather of Brutus, and it arrived today. And I've completely forgotten why I told you that. I'm so excited by it that it's... it's um, I, I, 
no, no, completely forgotten why I said that. Oh, that's okay. I mean, the the thing is, Aeneas and the Aeneas myth myth uh, fascinates me. So I'm actually very excited for when you you do uh, complete this uh, manuscript and it eventually gets uh, published. Or I should say, not complete, but when when the editing well, is yeah, done and it's published. Well, I mean, look, listen. I send as ever. You send a publisher a completely perfect text, you yes, know, and then they the editor then sends back something that's been torn to pieces and and <laughs> loads of, you know they 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 tend to sort of destroy man i find they sort of destroy man your your previously perfect manuscripts obviously it's not perfect at all it was really full of mistakes but anyway i'll deal with that and the book's coming out in october and that's that's the story of how rome acquired its trojan myth but oh that's what i was going to say the, the way that once you've decided who your mythological ancestor is how that really has a huge had a huge effect on on the way people behaved. Julius Caesar, for example, having a, Rome acquired the, the Trojan myth, and then Julius Caesar's family acquired the idea that they'd come from Troy and that they were descended from Aeneas. I mean, of course, they're going to decide that. But he took it so seriously that he, when he was chasing, uh, who was it? He was chasing Pompey. He was chasing Pompey across across the Mediterranean, wasn't he, trying to end the civil war. But when he got to Troy, he just had a few days off and became a tourist. And he went to visit the ruins of Troy because he believed that he his ancestors came from there. And he derived, derived an immense amount of um, pride and prestige and self-confidence from his connections with Troy. And when he was there, he sort of went around and he sort of worked, prayed at all the different shrines and, and asked asked where, you know, where all the different events of the Trojan War took place. He was terribly interested and they showed him as much as they could and made the rest up, probably. <clears throat> and um, yeah, and it's extraordinary. And, and, and I, I've argued I've argued in this new book that, that actually... If Rome and the Caesars hadn't had this ludicrously audacious belief that they were descended from the Trojans, they probably wouldn't have had the self-confidence to do the ludicrously audacious things they actually did, because they believed that through Aeneas they were descended from gods, and they behaved as if they really thought they were descended from gods. And, and that's how they managed to do it. And, and if it wasn't for that Trojan myth, they wouldn't have had the same well, Aeneas, degree of self-confidence. And then I'm, the British. Sorry, yes. Is that what no, you're going to say? No, Aeneas was a, a very pious you know, character. I mean, it was, it's, he was... Under he, the Romans, the Romans made him into a pious character. Exactly. It made him into one, yes. Mm. And and he lived by certain values, which the Romans thought was... He lived by surprisingly Roman values, um, which they, 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 they took the best of themselves and just sort of distilled it into the, the personality of, of, the, of Virgil's Aeneas. You don't the, find that in Homer. Yeah. Homer no, you don't. The, 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 the more the, rounded character. All the characters, including the gods themselves in Homer, were faulty, right? They... Hmm. they 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 gave in to to their desires, you know, lust, and 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 they were very human, which is what made Homer's version extremely entertaining. Not not that the 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 stories around Aeneas are not entertaining, but they're entertaining for a different reason. But when you think of Aeneas as a character and Virgil's Aeneid as a whole, mm. you get you get the sense of propaganda machine. Uh, I mean the 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 story itself. Virgil was commissioned by Augustus to write, 
to collect all the stories circulating uh, around Italy and then put them together into this cohesive narrative. And that's what we have today, even though it's incomplete because, well, Virgil uh, died before he could complete it. But we have this story that looks like it was written with um, possibly political purpose in mind. Oh, yeah. And it, it's not just, this is not unique to the Romans, right? We have, even if you look into the Old Testament and, and the ancient Near East, this whole line of David tracing back to the Davidic line. I mean, it's, it's all about propaganda to be able to unite people for a common, under a common identity for a common cause. And, and I see the same thing happening with, with Brutus. So it's not just yes. that, it's not just that. Brutus was invented just to say, oh, hey, he he founded Britain. No, we need to unite the people of Britain. We need to bring them together under a common identity. How can we do that? Yes. I mean, you invent the man, for, you invent the character first, and then, then, as you correctly say, you then impose your, your values on him. Yes, Virgil made Aeneas into, well, he made him into the best sort of Roman um, Virgil could, could imagine. He gave him all the, the qualities and strengths of a, of a Roman, that the, the Romans believed that they had and should have. But in fact, he also Virgil also then managed to insinuate some humanity, humanity into him, uh, which is what I think he hoped the Romans could have and, and wished the Romans had rather than what they actually had. And the point of the, the Aeneid was to glorify the Emperor Augustus, who, as you said, commissioned it, and and who, like his 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 adopted father Julius Caesar, uh, believed implacably, impl- implicitly, and implacably in his descent from the Trojans, and and just as Caesar derived huge amounts of self confidence from from this descent from Aeneas, who was of course the son of a goddess Aphrodite, uh, so uh, so so Augustus did as well, and and this and so that so with Brutus. All of that got channeled down in, into the into the British, and so when I was looking into how the Brutus myth had arisen in Britain, I became the detective, and I said, "Okay, so in that, if they invented this wonderful um, character and then made him a descendant of the Trojans, with all that that implies, uh, all, all the power and the prestige that implies, who was benefiting? Who was the person commissioning that, and who who was the one who was sort of getting getting the the, the, the results?" and and the answer was. As you'll know, because you read my book, Petros, it was it was the kings of Gwynedd in, in North Wales, who at that stage were the the most um, powerful. Isn't the right word because none of the Welsh were powerful, but they were they were the most um, sort of uh, collected of, of the Welsh kingdoms who'd survived the, the the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons. And at the time when the Brutus myth was really coming into its own um, in the, in around the eight hundreds um, AD. They were the ones who had any ambition to sort of create a, a permanent, a lasting kingdom in North Wales that they hoped they might even expand out into the rest of Wales to try and sort of stop the Saxons getting in. And so they were the ones, it was the princes of Gwynedd who really built up Brutus as, as a, a plausible historical character and, and, and a great sort of warrior and a great king because they wanted their people to believe that Brutus was their founder um, so that they could instill some courage into them really some 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 Roman some Roman instill some Roman courage into the into the people of Wales and so yes there was a political aim and the political aim I think was the very laudable aim of, of trying to stop their country being invaded by the Saxons. So always, always something political. Um, in that case, I think something rather good. 
So how far how far back do the stories go? The earliest reference to Brutus you will you will ever find in in a proper historical source is in Nineus, um, who wrote in a, it was a, they think round about eight twenty A.D. in 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 Gwynedd in North Wales, and he collected he collected stories of the origins of Britain by writing to different monasteries, writing to the monasteries and um, and asking them what they had in their archives. And he found these various different, very short little stories about Brutus, which seemed to go back maybe one or two hundred years, probably no longer than that. You can sort of half date them because they mention various Christian saints who who wrote them down or who are who are referred to, um, and and so there's it see it seems to have been a story that just sort of came into existence around about the say the six hundreds A.D. and then gradually got worked up into a little sort of core of a story by about eight hundred A.D. and and the the origin of the whole thing is, is this idea that the Britain had to have a founder so. If you didn't know who the founder was, you made one up on the basis of what the country was called. Uh, it's called etiology, and it was actually originally a Greek idea. And that all comes from Isidore of Seville, who was doing the same thing for the Europeans, but not the British, um, about 100 years before the first reference you get to Brutus in Britain. And so, so there was a whole sort of movement in Western Europe of trying to of trying to create history out by etiology, create history by looking at the origins of the names or sort of making up origins for them, all in the absence of archaeology, of course, you see. So roughly from the 600s, where you get the core of the idea, up to the 800s, where you have these little stories. And then you skip forward to the 1100s, so in the medieval period, to Geoffrey of Monmouth, who is the person who really wrote a good long interesting story of Brutus. And Geoffrey of Monmouth, who lived really just down the road from where I'm talking to you now, in my, I drove past Monmouth earlier today. And he wrote a sort of little novel, really, about the life of Brutus and all his different adventures, a great, a, a real adventure story, um, embellishing, embellishing as he, as he went. And so, and so it's Geoffrey of Monmouth who gave us the Brutus of Troy, who then everyone now looks back to uh, he, he created the sort of uh, the, the iconic, the, the iconic character, if you like. So the thing that I find most fascinating about Brutus is not only just his connection with Aeneas, but there is a connection with Arthurian legend. Um, and you've already mentioned the Welsh monarchy. The fact is that even today, and this is this is the part that I love the most. Even today, the British royals can say that they are descendants of Aeneas and the Trojan refugees from the Trojan War, which I find absolutely amazing. Myth, myth or not, I think that's phenomenal. Well, I don't know. It is Just to be clear, it is myth. But yes, but the, uh, what the, the British, our kid, I, I speak to today only, what was it, five, five, six days after the coronation of King Charles III, who has as one of his middle names, as I'm sure you'll know, uh, his, one of his middle names is Arthur. And and the British royal family have used the name Arthur on and off since the Middle Ages because of their great uh, our great pride in being descended from the the I, I say the family of King Arthur. The genealogy there is very complicated, and I'm not going to go into that now because I can't remember half of it. Um, it's, it's extremely complicated. Um, and Arthur himself, as you know, was a semi mythological figure. But anyway, whatever. 
the, the, the British monarchy <clears throat> can, can trace themselves back to the Welsh kings. And the Welsh kings believed themselves to be descendants of Brutus of Troy. I mean, they weren't because Brutus of Troy was made up. So you can't say that the British monarchy now is descended from Brutus of Troy because he didn't exist. But they are descended from people who absolutely, absolutely believed themselves to be descendants of Brutus and who acted as if they were. And you sometimes acted on the basis that they were descendants of Brutus of Troy. And things that they did can be explained by their belief in their descent from Brutus. I mean, just to give you one tiny example, um, if you think of uh, Spencer's epic poem, The Fairy Queen, which was written um, for Elizabeth I, um, you get quite a lot of Trojan references in that, and, and Brutus and Prince Arthur, um, King Arthur, the, as a young man, come into it. And, and this was written because through her Tudor blood, Elizabeth I believed absolutely that she was a descendant of Brutus of Troy. And so when Edmund Spencer wrote The Fairy Queen, he wrote he wrote something that flattered her belief in her descent from Brutus and to a certain extent confirmed it. And again, you look at it, I find it's always a matter, it's always a question of self-confidence, that self-confidence comes from different sources. And in some cases, it comes from things that aren't even real. I mean, people can derive great self-confidence from, say, a, a religious belief that, that, that other people might not think that was, was true. Um, and as we've seen, people can derive um, self-confidence from things that probably aren't true at all. But uh, in the case of, um, of of the British monarchy, they they had a very clear belief that they were descended from the Trojans, and and that gave them a great deal of self-confidence. And 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 they behaved as as if they were Trojans. And and when you look at Tudors and Stuarts, and and and, and we we look at Tudors and Stuarts and don't really think of it what they were thinking, but what they were thinking was we're Trojans. That's what they were thinking. It's it's funny that you you know mentioned this whole confidence thing. While this does not necessarily give me confidence because I'm making it up, but I've joked around with friends and maybe even on this program in an earlier episode that my father is from Sparta in oh. in the uh, the the state of uh, Laconia or Laconia in, in Greece. Oh, that's, and, that certainly and, comes into the Aeneas's story very much. Yeah. Well, the, the, the reason why I mention this is because there are many times where I jokingly say that my great, 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 great father and then some is Leonidas of Sparta. He's the one that uh, <laughs> that led the 300 Spartans to... What, you, you're, you're, in your own, you're only going back that far. You're not claiming, laying, laying claim to, to Menelaus, the, the husband of... No, Menelaus. no, no, because or, Menelaus oh, well. was not... Menelaus was not a born Spartan. You know, he married a Spartan princess, which was very common in the Bronze Age, late Bronze Age Greece. It was also very common in in, in the Hittite uh, monarchy, where everything followed a a matrilinear line, and the the male married into uh, the family. Um, but, so, he became, but he was he wasn't from Sparta, but he, he no. you can lay claim, you can lay claim to him as a Spartan. I could, I could. Yes. That's true. Because he ended but, up there. I only go back to Leonidas because most. I think you're being very modest. <laughs> well, that's that's where I get my confidence because I'm tough like a Spartan, right? Of course. But anyway, course. I joke and and you know people have a good time and then they make fun of me, which is yeah, no, no. I... I mean, I do the same. I mean, I, I've I've got a, I've got a line of descent back to the Welsh princes. 
and so I, I've got Brutus as a, as an ancestor, and I, I've of course jolly jolly proud. I, I I lay claim to him as as much as possible and as frequently as possible. And and indeed, actually, then it's silly because actually, then you do find yourself actually, if you're in a sort of all tough situation, you think, "Come on, I'm descended from Brutus of Troy," and you and it's sort of it's very quite helpful sometimes actually, even though you know you know it's a, it's a, it's a, it's made up. The descent isn't made up, you know. And I do, I do think that it's important to think. Well, the ancestors who themselves thought Brutus was their ancestor did did believe in him very much, and that's what's important, I think. Yes, it's one of the things that the Brutus myth left behind when it, the Brutus myth washed back. It left various things behind, and and, and that belief in, in in being descended from him is one of them. And you mentioned Arthur because, of course, King Arthur. Is our arguably the, the the great mythological figure in Britain nowadays, and and in many ways, actually, when you look into the origins, not of Arthur the man, if he ever existed, but Arthur the myth. Arthur's myth arose as a sort of side issue to the story of Brutus, because his first main appearance was actually in Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, which starts with Brutus. So. The story began with Brutus, then it follows down the descendants of Brutus over the centuries, and then comes to King Arthur, and then Geoffrey of Monmouth gave King Arthur much more of a biography, much more of a life than he'd had before. And then, strangely, in the centuries after Geoffrey of Monmouth, Brutus, who started off as the most important character, rather sort of faded away into the background, and King Arthur, who'd started off as a sort of a subsidiary story to the Brutus one, it came into the fore. And so by the 18th and 19th centuries, or indeed in, in modern Britain now, King Arthur, who started off as a sort of bit, bit player in the story of Brutus, is now almost the main, he's the main character we look back to in our British history as the great mythological figure. And in, in, in a way, he sort of took on some of, our, some of Brutus's um, attributes and, and aspects, particularly the Trojan aspect. He became like Aeneas. He became he became the absolute paragon of everything it was to be British and everything it was to be marvellous and, and, and courteous and chivalrous and, and, and brave and everything. When you look at the Arthur of the of the 10th century or the 9th century, if you can even find him, um, you, you find somebody who was actually quite sort of quite brutal, quite a sort of nasty character. I mean, Geoffrey of Monmouth's Arthur went around Europe and, and killed as many people as he possibly could and thought it was absolutely fantastic. Whereas um, by the 13th and 14th centuries, Arthur had become rather like Aeneas, a very sort of uh, a very civilised, uh, cultured um, a, a warrior, but a, but a, a chivalrous warrior, and and that's all taking elements from Brutus and his and Brutus's ancestor Aeneas, and so so nowadays we have as our great mythological figure Arthur, and we have him in a way because of Brutus, even though now we don't often think or talk very much about Brutus, and Arthur is Arthur is one of the legacies, if you like, of the Brutus myth. Yeah, the Arthurian legends fascinate me. And and I need to emphasize legends, right? Because as with, in the case of Brutus, yes, we know that the character Brutus was made up. Totally made up, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, and I know how you feel about oral tradition, but, you know, part of me, the romantic side of me, when it comes to many of these things, just wants to believe, you know, is... 
Was there? Well, we've been, well, you ought to believe that Brutus was a real person. Well, I want to believe that even yes. Arthur was a real person. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, let's be clear. I, I want to be absolutely clear here. I, like everyone else, started off absolutely hoping that Brutus was a real person. And I, I actually remember, Petros, I can remember the day back in, about probably about 15 years ago now, when I sat at my desk, having done all this research and looked, found out the origins of Brutus and tried to look at the archaeology to see if there was any evidence of Trojans landing in Britain. And I remember sitting there thinking, I've completely wasted my time. I've done all this research. I've got a, got a book, you know, the, the material for a book here, all about Brutus. But I've found, I've proved the opposite to what I wanted, because I wanted to prove he was real. And I thought, I've done all this research, and I've proved he wasn't real. And I thought, bother this, bother, you know, what an absolute nuisance, what a waste of time. And then I thought to myself, hang on, <laughs> no, I haven't wasted my time, because actually, there's still a story here. And the story isn't, look, this here's proof that Brutus existed. The story is how Britain invented a mythological hero that it really needed, um, and how that mythological character then took wings and, and developed into a, this magnificent character, how this extraordinary story came out of nothing. And I thought that in itself is a story. So that's the story that I wrote. It is. My, my book, it's a great story. story. And then when I went on to write my book about Aeneas, which, as I said, I just got the, the proofs through just a couple of hours ago. Extraordinary. Finally come. Um, so with, with Aeneas, I, 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 I didn't even start off by thinking I must prove he was a real person. I thought, no, it's perfectly acceptable to just write about mythological characters as mythological characters and accept they didn't exist. Now, funnily enough, with Aeneas, I think there is actually a, a core at the very core of Aeneas that, that could actually have been a real person living in, in, in near Bronze Age Troy, who was a real king, who's then had a sort of vast amount of mythology sort of dumped on him later on. Um, and the same with Arthur. Arthur, I'm sure King Arthur did exist as, as a real person. And actually, I live in, I'm, I live in Herefordshire, uh, which is just on the Welsh borders. From my house, I can see the, the, the Black Mountains of Wales. And in this area, there are loads and loads of little bits and pieces of Arthurian myth and legend. Little, there's a village nearby where his nephew was supposed to have lived, and then there was a burial mound down the road near the pub I go to, which which is where one of his other nephews was supposed to have been buried. And, and there are so many little bits and pieces that you think, well, there probably was a real Welsh king called Arthur who ruled in this little area. Um, and there's even actually a genealogy that's got a name, a name similar to Arthur in it. And so, so with Arthur, there the almost certainly was one or more well British Welsh leader who had to deal with the, the fact that the Saxons were coming and had to do something about it. And 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 then on to them were, were then piled all these different stories. And what, once Arthur existed as a, as I say, Geoffrey of Monmouth makes him quite an unpleasant man. You wouldn't have wanted to run across him. He would have chopped your head off before asking questions. But, but the, the real Arthur probably was a real man. And then, and then gradually over the years, he then began like a magnet to just collect all these different myths from different places. And then we had myths, we had lots of myths of giants in Britain. But gradually all those, a lot of those myths suddenly became attracted to the magnetic figure of King Arthur. So Arthur sort of took on the ability to sort of battle giants and throw them around the place and and so 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 and 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 then uh, so so when you want to sort of get back into the real the real origin myths of Britain and the real local myths 
you sort of look at these big characters like Brutus and Arthur and think, well, I know that all these myths about him probably sort of came from somewhere else originally. So if you sort of pick them apart, you can sometimes find little bits and pieces that you could you can say could possibly have been once a local story um, here or a local myth there and that sort of got attracted to, to Brutus or Arthur and then got preserved because people then wrote the story down in relation to Brutus or Arthur. And so they act as a sort of, well, yes, like a magnet, really, is collecting lots of other lots of things that would otherwise perhaps have been lost altogether. I mean, I think in the story of Brutus, as you know, in my book, I took Geoffrey of Monmouth's story of Britain and I broke it down into bits because the way Geoffrey of Monmouth wrote, he tended to stitch together or glue together different stories that he'd found in different places. And if you really look carefully at his text and just read, if you just sit and read the book, read his story, you can almost see where the sellotape, you can see the yellow marks where the sellotape was, where he took one story and then stuck it onto another one. And and Brutus's story contains four or five different sources that Geoffrey of Monmouth seems to have drawn on. And they're sources which, as I pointed out in the book, which if he, if he hadn't copied them out into his history of the kings of Britain as part of Brutus's story, would probably have been lost altogether. But because he found them and put them in then then they're there and and, and so so if you sort of you you have to pick all these things apart you treat them like a i don't know you could say a bit like a, a sort of waste bin waste paper bin you know you sort of go through bin and sort of pull out the different bits take them out unroll them and see what you've got and there's quite a lot there there's quite a lot of british mythology real british mythology tucked away and preserved in their stories well that's not just limited to, to british mythology i think of no. Homeric myth. And when we look at the late Bronze Age, Anatolia, uh, we have the Hittite archives that sort of shed light on what was going on at the time. You know, do you have very the, much so? Yeah, the Akiawa, which were the, the Achaean Greeks, causing a lot of trouble on the western coast of uh, the Anatolian mainland. And it was over the a stretch of a couple hundred of years. No, a little less than that, but it was. It was not confined to a single event. So you have these separate skirmishes and separate, you know, situations and, and and so forth that eventually got squished down into a single cohesive narrative that eventually, you know, bards such as Homer would recite orally over and over and over again. And and you know, with artistic liberties, uh, some of this stuff would evolve to make it that much more entertaining. Um, so what you're describing is it's not abnormal. I mean, it's something that we've seen in, in uh, mythologies and have come to understand uh, today. But it, it's funny because, you know, I'm talking about the, the Hittites and the Hittite texts. And within the Hittite texts, we see references to key characters, key names, Atareisa, which, you know, was Atreus. There was uh, an, an Alexandru, which was an Alexander, which, you know, uh, Paris. Piriamadu, I think, was one name, which is a rendering of King Priam. There was an Akagemunash, which I believe, you know, may be a rendering of Agamemnon. So we find these names in these names themselves. So there is, I don't want to say a kernel of truth, but there is an individual that may be Greek, or at least, you know, uh, referred to as one of the Akiawa. And uh, they share names with 
the characters that would later, you know, be Agamemnon and, and, and Atreus and, and so forth in Homeric myth. Now, how much of these characters were preserved? Maybe nothing beyond their names. But the, the fact is, we see this in the text. We can corroborate it. And, and over time, like you mentioned, you know, like a magnet, these stories would just get attached to this one character and it would just evolve. And it would evolve to the point where it would be used as, like we mentioned earlier, propaganda, entertainment, or anything else related. But I just, to me, the idea of how myths come together, how stories come together has always fascinated me. Yes, so you're looking you're looking at at Homer's Iliad, correct? As, as another example of a big mythological story that that contained lots of pieces that have been brought together from from other other sources in 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 the same way that Brutus's story and Arthur's story attracted um, other things. And and yes, and you're quite I, I I agree with you that that these I mean the extraordinary thing with the Hittite texts is that, of course, they were only found a couple of hundred years ago, and they were only translated about, what was it, about 200 years ago now, wasn't it? I don't even know. It's Yeah, I I don't know that it's been that long. It was George Smith in the British Museum in, what, 18... No, 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 that's that's not... uh, George Smith uh, translated the Epic of Gilgamesh in the uh, late 19th century. Well, that's Um, right, but that was cute, that was... He worked out cuneiform, didn't he? And then the Hittite um, writing. Yeah, I believe the Hittite language itself was uh, deciphered in the early 20th century. Uh, that's oh, when they discovered. Is. That's when they discovered it was a, 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 an Indo-European language, yeah. similar anyway, to. The point, anyway, the point yes. is the point. The extraordinary, the, the extraordinary thing there was the extraordinary thing there was that that suddenly, after centuries of wondering whether or not Homer's Iliad was made up or not, suddenly. These bits of pottery <clears throat> were dragged out of the ground and translated. And as you say, there were references, tantalizing references in the actual history of the Hittites that do, do seem to have bear, have some bearing on, on, on or some similarity to, to the story that Homer was writing. I mean, it's a shame they haven't found anything that sort of just sort of says, oh, yes, there was a Trojan War. You know, <laughs> there's nothing like that, is there? But, but there's enough in there to, to make you realize that, that Homer or to prove it there's enough in there to prove isn't there that homer wasn't just making it all up homer wasn't a novelist homer was 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 recounting a story about events that were palpably um palpably did take place um maybe i put that slightly badly but homer homer was not making everything up because there are references in the Hittite writings to things that Homer also referred to. And uh, and that was an extraordinary thing because suddenly people could look at the Homer's Iliad as something which could possibly be historically accurate rather than um, something which was complete and utter fantasy. It's something which I went, I've gone into in, actually in the new book um, in, in some detail. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting topic. One of the things that frustrated me though writing a biography of Aeneas was, I thought, now, where's the nice Hittite reference to somebody called Aeneas? And of course, <laughs> there isn't one. That's annoying. And um, and Aeneas's pedigree, his family tree, um, which which is which Homer recorded, I thought, now, where will I find those people in the surviving Hittite records? And of course, there wasn't any reference. There is, yes, there is that sort of tantalising name that could be the same as King Priam. 
Um, and there's also this character, yes, who's called Alexandru, wasn't he? Who and I mean, and we know that Homer said that Paris's other alternative name was Alexander. So that's exciting. So there are definitely things in the Hittite writings, um, the Hittite records that do correspond very well to, to things that Homer said. And and um, yes, and and the the analysis of the of the Iliad which is a complicated um, subject, is, is one that you can now undertake with some confidence and, and say, well, actually, um, there's, there's strong evidence that, that Homer was, was recording something, which was actually, yes, OK, I'll go back to my disparaging comments about oral history, <laughs> something that was remembered orally. <clears throat> and then it was remembered long enough for Homer to create the Iliad, and then it got written down. Um, whether by him or not, we don't know, do we? And so that that's the basis of my argument in my new book about Aeneas, that Aeneas could have been based on a, a real person, because it does look as if quite a lot of Homer's characters were based on real people. Well, I am looking forward to this new book when it does get published. And, and when well, it's it does, coming out, not, is it coming out, unless, unless something disastrous happens, and Let's face it, you know, it can always happen, can't it? Um, it'll be coming out in October. So with with, the, with that little family tree, with from you, with, you've got Aeneas, who I think could have been a, a, originally a real person living near Troy, who got involved in this the, the Trojan War, and then and then, but then the whole story of him going to Italy was definitely made up later and you can see how it got made up and you can see why the Romans wanted to make it up and then once he was in Italy there's the idea that he had a son and then a grandson and then that's all that's in Roman history and then fast forward to the 600s or 700s AD and the British then added an extra generation onto that little family tree and they gave Aeneas a great-grandson who was our Brutus of Troy who then left Italy went off to Greece to collect the Trojan uh, descendants of the Trojans who were living there in slavery, and then sailed all the way around past Spain, up up to Britain, and founded Britain, settled Britain with its first inhabitants, and, and defeated, he found giants here, of course, and, and um, had a great war with those, um, and defeated them, and then he settled Britain for the first time with humans. Well, of course, we know that there were people here long before that, so we know it's a myth, but that whole story was added on to the original core of of, um, of the story of Aeneas. As I say in the introduction to my Aeneas book, that if Aeneas did exist, then he probably would have had, he was, as he, as a Bronze Age king, who was supposed to be the son of a goddess, he probably would have had quite an ego, you know, he probably thought of quite a bit of himself as of course. ascended to. But if he knew quite how much had been added to his story in terms of his foundation of Rome, you know, he, then he created... He was, he invented, he sort of created this vast empire that sort of ended up ruling the entire Mediterranean. And then, and then, not only that, he then became credited with being the ancestor of the, of the founder of, of Britain. I mean, he'd never even heard of Britain, but, you know, he would have been, I think the real Aeneas, if he knew everything that was going to happen to his story, would have been absolutely flabbergasted, <laughs> completely shocked and surprised. Well, probably about, quite pleased. It's all about legacy. And obviously, oh, yes. whether and it's made got, up or not, got, he definitely... He got a legacy. He got exactly. a legacy beyond any other. I mean, he, he was on a par. He ended up in late Roman and early Christian mythology, if you could say mythology. He ended up almost on a par with Jesus in the sense yes. Yes. that he was believed to have been apotheosed into heaven. And his apotheosis into heaven was thought about and imagined only a few decades before the story 
if, if it happened, we have to be respectful to people, um, of Jesus rising up into heaven. Although Aeneas lived a thousand years, or to over a thousand years before Jesus, the story about Aeneas ascending into heaven came just before the recording of the story of Jesus rising up into heaven. And so the two characters, the two characters, Jesus and Aeneas, were utterly pivotal to the story of the Roman Empire and to the story of Christianity. And, and Aeneas's myth cross-fertilised a little with that of Jesus. So Jesus's overall which, story ended up with, with lots of very strong elements of Virgil's Aeneas. Well, which coincidentally, um, even the uh, the story around Romulus and how Romulus uh, died, or I shouldn't say died, eh, how Romulus oh, well, was yes. ascended if you've, if you've to... Risen up, if, you've, if you've risen up into heaven, have you really died? Yes. Well, that's that's, yes. that's, a, that's a, <laughs> there's a moot point, isn't it? But, but, um, but yes, there was a lot of rising up it was. Heaven. It all happened at that at that time. Exactly, uh, yes, so, and, and Caesar, Caesar's supposed to have risen up into heaven, and um, a lot of a lot of it went on in those days, in those heady days in the past. And anyone who can then claim descent from him, which is what the Welsh princes were doing through Brutus, anyone who can claim descent from these characters gained so much prestige and so much self confidence because they they were connected to people who'd done something well preeminent. Oh, that's what I was saying. Yes, that he, Aeneas became. He didn't just become an ancestor. He became the ancestor. You know, he was the ancestor who you wanted to have. And people went to great efforts to create genealogical connections back to him. Henry VIII, sorry, Henry VII, Henry VII, when he came to the throne, um, went to extraordinary lengths to prove that he was descended from Brutus of Troy. He, he had Welsh ancestry. But it wasn't actually very distinguished at all. He was, he was Henry Tudor, as you, you'll remember. And he sent a, a group of scholars off to Wales to trace his ancestry, to find his descent from the Welsh princes and thus, and thus from Brutus. And when he sent them to find his ancestry, he didn't say, can you please look into my ancestry? And it would be wonderful if you could find a descent from Brutus for me. He said... You're going to find a descent from Brutus, aren't you? And they said, yes, King Henry, you know, and off they went. And sure enough, they managed to stick bits of family tree together in a, in a convincing enough way for Henry VII to accept it and say, right, from now on, I'm descended from Brutus of Troy. And, and he needed that because he was a new, a new king for new, a new dynasty on the throne. And he needed some good, solid Roman uh, antecedents to, to, to bolster his regime. And, and well, he, that's he, that's and, what Augustus did, right? To legitimize. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. And they needed it. Position, they really needed. Yes. So, so that's why these characters and the, that's why these myths are so prominent. Because the people who caused them to be invented had very, very good reasons to want them to be prominent. They needed them, and they used them, and and, um, and that's why that they they were sort of heavily promoted. Yes. And of course, and the success, the consequent success of the people who invented the myths um, then caused them to be prolonged and propagated. I mean, if the Emperor Augustus had had the Aeneid written and then sort of fell down a manhole, you know, the next day and was replaced by someone completely different, then they'd probably have chucked the Aeneid down the manhole as well. Uh, so, um, so, so it was the success of the people who invented, who created the myths that then caused the myths to to carry on being um, popular and prominent for, for, for centuries to come and for, for later generations to want to connect themselves to them. So there's a lot of uh, propagation, a lot of cross-fertilisation between myth and real history. 
yes. right the way yes. through, right the way through the process. I've even argued in my Brutus book that that, that as late as the, as the 19th century, when the British were carving out the British Empire, um, when you look at these young men from England who went or in Scotland as well, uh, who went out to, to Africa and India and did uh, tiny numbers of them with just a few guns, and they sort of conquered vast swathes of Africa and and, and India and all over the place. And you think, what, why, how, how could they have, how, where did they get their self-confidence? And the answer is that when they were at school, pretty much all they learned was they did Homer. <laughs> so they did the Trojan War. They did the Aeneid. And, and they knew and they did know about the story of Brutus. And, and so they had this idea that their country had this extraordinary divine origin and a sort of divine destiny stamped on it so it's, and, and this was in their in the maybe not in the forefront of their minds but it was in the backs of their minds that their country was something quite exceptional and and all all of that you know think of all of that classical mythology focused on britain through the myth makers but it was focused on britain in their heads and 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 that's what gave these young men the confidence to go and do the extraordinary things that they did for better or good or ill, we don't know. Yes, unfortunately, do. the same political machine of you know uh, propaganda uh, was was used in you know during the uh, World War Two and in the time of the Nazis, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, oh, no, I mean, it can be used. Well, I mean, creating the British Empire wasn't necessarily an act of, of, of altruistic goodness, was it? But I mean, yes, but but certainly, in, in the you ought to look at what's in the heads of these people. I mean, with, yes, I mean, it's to say, yes, you, you analyse what, what Hitler was up to. And of course, he was using, he used German mythology and, and Wagner's operas and everything, didn't he? To, to create, a, again, an idea that, that, that Germany was the most important country in the world. And Germany had a great divine destiny to rule the world. And, and yes, so mythology, I, I've, I've never claimed that mythology was ever used wholly for good. Good grief, no. Um, in fact, has it ever been? <laughs> But it's it's what gives us these great stories, anyway. I agree, and 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 I know that the next time uh, that I visit uh, London, I'm going to mm. remember. I'm going to remember that, according to legend, at one point it was considered New Troy. Am I wrong? It was. Yes. yes. Brutus is buried. He's buried under the tower, under the White Tower in the Tower of London, and. If you are here at the beginning of November, you'll see the Lord Mayor's show, which is held every year. And one of the in in the near the front of the procession are the two great big giants that get wheeled out from the Guildhall. And one of those is Gog Magog, and one of them is Coroneus. And they are two figures who fe feature prominently in the story of Brutus. Brutus doesn't get wheeled out, interestingly. And they don't know about Brutus anymore. But the giants, these are two more bits of flotsam and jetsam left over from the Brutus myth. And the two giants are there living in the guild hall and they get wheeled out every year and everyone sees them go past. And as very few people know why, what, who they are or what they're doing there. But I do. And I put it in my book. And if you read my book, you'll know as well. And you have. So you do know. Yes. Yes, I recall. So I've got a there's a photograph. There's a photo in there, which um I took I went up to see the Lord Mayor's show about ten years ago and, and there's a photo in my book of the giants going down. But people do people do there there are lots of little bits of mythology all over the place that people know about, but they don't now know that they come from the Brutus story. And so it's interesting to recount re 
study the Brutus story because then you know where all these little bits and pieces have come from. And you can explain it. And and it's all fascinating. And, uh, you know, like, like I said, that's that's part of the reason why I brought you onto the program, because this is a story that so many people don't know about. And, and it's something that I think is interesting enough where people should learn about. So I wanted to take the opportunity to thank you, uh, Anthony. I think this has been a wonderful conversation. As we start ending this, um, you know, this episode, I wanted to take a moment to to see if you had any parting words uh, for for the listener. Um, I could say a couple of things. One thing is to apologize for the little bling bling noise that happened about five minutes ago, which is actually my, I have an alert, you know, I have a, on the computer, it tells you when new emails have arrived. And ironically, the new email that had arrived was was an ancient from Ancient Origins, which is the, the site on which you um, reviewed I got, my- I got the book. same email. You got I, it I, as well, <laughs> but you haven't got a sort of you haven't got a bling bling noise switch. No, and I, and I didn't hear one. I didn't hear one, so I, I oh, don't you know. Didn't. If, oh, good. I, I don't know if it came through. Oh, probably, hopefully it didn't. So my parting, my parting thing, the thing I'd say at the end would be that somebody who doesn't know about the Brutus myth, listening to our conversation this afternoon, is probably I'm going to apologise to you, the listener. Because you've no idea what we've just been talking about, because it is, I'm afraid, quite complicated. And it's the nature of a conversation that we go from one bit to another bit, um, rather than starting at the beginning and explaining it all fully, which is what you do in a lecture or a talk or a book. And so the book I've written does explain everything right from the start. Um, and so that's not a sales, well, it is, but it's it's just a way of explanation. So if you're intrigued as to what we've been talking about, if you read my book, Brutus of Troy, you'll find out. Um, and the other thing is, yes, we've been talking generally about the way the way myths, the way myths and real history interact, not just once, but I find repeatedly, and that myths cause people to behave in certain ways. They cause countries to behave in certain ways. And then countries cause myths to grow to suit their needs and desires and to answer their hopes and their and their fears and their aspirations. And if you just study human history and on the basis of what happened and events and battles and everything, you get quite a lot of the story, but you'll only get the full story if you try and get inside of the heads of the people concerned. And the way to get inside the heads of people in the past is to understand the religious beliefs they had and the mythological beliefs. And I don't think that the mythological side of it is much understood now or much taken into account because, you see, we don't have myths now in the same way. So we don't take into account the fact that people in the past did. And so I think if you want to understand how the Roman Empire rose up in the way it did and how they had such self-confidence and actually how the British Empire rose up in the way it did with such self-confidence, you have to look at the myths they were being taught when they were little and the myths that they grew up with. And those myths are the, the Trojan myths of Aeneas and then of Brutus of Troy, the founder of Britain. And so that's what I've been doing. I've been trying to burrow into the their mythological thoughts and find out what the myths were that inspired these empires to become what they became. So that's that's that would be my passing thought as my voice gives out. No, that's and that's that's great. And it. I also want to make mention that uh, at the end of the year, 
uh, this year when your book on Aeneas is out. I would love for you to come back on and we can continue this conversation, but with Aeneas. So, oh, certainly, because I know that, that that's I've that's, seen your work. I've I admire your work enormously. You've done you've written and well, you've, you've broadcast and 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 uh, immensely about about all this, and you've been writing about these things for years. And I know that you know you know vastly more than I do. I've just been sort of scratching the surface on these little topics I write about about mythology. But I see you have a you've got a great breadth of knowledge about all the whole thing, and you can recite all those Hittite names, which I can't do. I can I can look back and check how they're spelt. But you're quite happy rattling them off in conversation. I, well, when I you say it, honestly. when you say it enough times, you mm. know, it's because <laughs> you broadcast. But but some I wouldn't know how to pronounce those for for Toffee. But yeah, I've yeah. got them. I make down. it up. I make it up as oh, I. Oh, you're making it up. I'm, oh, I'm kidding. It's a joke. It's a joke. I try yeah, my yeah. best. But it's very difficult because the thing is, I mean, you write when you write things. You see something in a book. You you copy the word out these ancient names you know and you write them then you put them in your book and and you you know that all goes through and then you um you you write you write a talk and you you write it out you write it don't you and it's only when you come to give the talk you think oh crikey how on earth do i how on earth do you pronounce these names it's about confidence i've been caught out a few times though with but with you know they're quite long some of them are quite long and you think i've literally no idea how to pronounce that because i've seen it on paper so many times but in real life, gracious me, what is it? <laughs> so, um, yeah, tricky stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I know I, I, I admire your work, and obviously, and you've done a lot to well, you've done a lot to bring these all these different topics to to a wider public attention. Which is well, thank great you very much. Like me, it, well, no, because it's I mean, it, it's people like you, and you you reviewed my last book, and you review books, and you 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 tell you bring so much information to the world through through your work. So I think it's wonderful. So thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And again, it's all about confidence. Mm, it is <laughs> absolutely. And your myth and your mythological belief in your descent from Leonidas. Yes. <laughs> yes, which you must hold on to. <laughs> and we have come to an end with another great episode. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Substack newsletter where you will get a lot more awesome historical content. Also, Let me know your thoughts and whether you'd like to see more community-driven discourse via the new Substack Threads feature accessible from the Substack Reader mobile application. Got something to say? Or do you have ideas for topics to cover in future episodes? Then be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me at petros at petroskatupis.com. Who knows, it may even be featured in an upcoming newsletter, video, or podcast episode. This is Petros Katupis, signing off.